Good day and welcome to the T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Mr. Ethan Lacey. Please go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ethan Lacey. I do TMT Specialty Sales at New Street, and I want to thank you for joining us today on the call, the purpose of which is to review potential outcomes, effects, and timing, and the overall landscape of the litigation between the state AGs and T-Mobile and Sprint. I'm delighted that we have a guest speaker today, Gene Kimmelman, is joining us, President and CEO of Public Knowledge. Gene is a nationally known antitrust expert who served as Chief Counsel for the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division. And from New Street, we have Blair Levin, our TMT regulatory analyst, former FCC Chief of Staff, and author of the National Broadband Plan, and Jonathan Chaplin, our senior U.S. telco cable analyst. Uh, the format uh, will be a brief overview uh, and followed with some Q&A, as always, the more interactive, the better. So if you have any questions, uh, uh, please ask them, or you can email them in if you want to as well. It's ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. And with that, I'm going to hand the call over to Blair. Blair. Uh, thank you very much, Ethan, uh, and welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the first in a series of calls we hope to be doing this fall to help investors get ready for the second trial of the century that we've had this century. Um, uh, but this one, in, in many ways, I think, is more unpredictable and also probably more important um, uh, in terms of setting out the structure. Lots of different opinions, both as to the outcome of the trial and what the consequences of different outcomes would be. Uh, and we hope through this series to help uh, educate ourselves and investors about uh, all the different possibilities. We're delighted to start with uh, Gene Kimmelman, who I suspect almost everyone who's on this call knows. Uh, I should note that Gene is no longer the president and CEO of Public Knowledge, having turned over the reins uh, to Chris Lewis, um, I, I think, over the summer. Uh, Gene did a fantastic job while he was there, as he has done in a number of other jobs with a very a strong uh, specialization on antitrust, uh, serving both in the Congress and at the antitrust division and as an advocate. Um, so he has seen it from multiple different perspectives. I should also note that Gene has a particular perspective on, on this transaction. He is actually calling in today from the birthplace uh, or the hometown of Charlie Ergen, uh, which also happens to be Gene's. He and uh, Mr. Ergen actually attended high school together and have known each other for a very long time. So he brings not only that kind of antitrust knowledge, but also knowledge about one of the key players. And uh, kind of the motives and abilities of that key player will be uh, one of the issues that will no doubt arise in the trial. I'm going to start by just asking Gene a series of questions, and then we'll open it up to questions from you in 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, we basically want to cover two topics because there are two potential types of outcomes. One would involve a settlement uh, prior to trial, which is very common in, in, in a lot of civil litigation. Uh, the second would be what happens if it does go to trial. Let's start with talking about the settlement. Gene, uh, you, you and I have chatted about this. Um, we've now got a, a group of uh, approximately 15 attorney generals, depending on how you count uh, the District of Columbia, um, largely Democratic, but includes one major Republican from the state of Texas. Um, is a settlement possible with that group? And if so, what would the terms of that settlement be? What would the attorney generals be looking for? Well, I think that kind of the makeup of the group I mean, for the purposes of thinking settlement going um, into trial without, again, any new knowledge of the judge's attitude or how they're, how they're planning the, 
the uh, presentation of testimony at the trial, um, but just based on what we know. I don't think the makeup of the group, I don't think the partisan or nonpartisan configuration of it matters that much. I think what matters is they have, the states have been preparing for this almost from the get-go, anticipating uh, at least the lead states that they might come out in a different place than the Department of Justice. They had planned their expert um, attorneys to be focused on it and some outside economists. So I think what you have to expect in the in the lead up to a trial is that they're going to be turning to those experts and saying, how strong is our case? And I think they're going to feel like the case is strong based on the underlying facts, which, by the way, the Department of Justice does not really dispute the highly concentrated market, however you look at it, um, a significant increase in concentration. And so I think there will be little motivation based on the actual antitrust facts on the ground to settle. Um, they'll think they have a strong case. They'll think they get a structural presumption against the deal based on the levels of concentration and uh, um, and think that they have a strong record to support the judge not even looking deeper than that. Similarly, they will have a history of MVNOs not being counted as real competitors, including by the federal enforcement agencies. And so, again, I think... You know, short of new facts arising in terms of relevance to the antitrust assessment, I don't think there'll be any inclination to settle. You raise a couple of really interesting points, one of which, and I think a lot of investors that I've talked to kind of miss this critical point, which is the DOJ actually filed a complaint, along with a number of other states, filed a complaint against the deal and then said, but in light of the fix, um, we think they should be allowed to close. But in terms of just kind of stating the basic facts of what the deal has proposed and, and that the FCC said it would approve back in May, the DOJ obviously disagreed with the FCC and said that deal would not be, um, would not be approved. Why did the DOJ do that instead of simply saying, well, because of the, the, the dish deal, we simply aren't, we aren't going to oppose it? Why did they go ahead and file that complaint? Well, you know, so it's really impossible to know the motivation of any of this. Uh -huh. um, you can speculate yeah. many different ways. But in just in terms of the integrity of the process and the line of thinking that goes back at least to AT&T, T-Mobile, the department has been very consistent in its presentation. And so it would have taken a significant deviation from that to say, we don't care anymore about some of the things that we've traditionally cared about. So instead, they've just gone ahead and filed everything based on the uh, consistent way of thinking about how to review these kind of transactions, but on top of that, settled. So again, the, the facts we don't know, we don't know the motivation, but the other facts we don't know is how the judge will want to, if he wants to at all, sweep the DOJ into the trial. In other words, right now, it's the merging parties versus the states with the relevance of the DOJ settlements hanging out there. Um, we don't know what role the judge will want to play. And so some of the pretrial 
um, determinations and uh, um, discussions about how DOJ will be brought in could be really relevant to this. But I believe going into it, short of anything new like that, the states will say we have the same case the DOJ would have had if they just did what they said they were doing, and we're asking the judge to rule on it before you get to, before you even start thinking about 5G or you think about who Charlie Ergen is or anything like that. That doesn't matter. Um, it's a strong case for denying uh, the merger under Section 7 of the Claim Act. Well, you, you've gone right to what I want to ask uh, about what we should be watching for between now and the opening uh, of the trial. But let me just kind of finish up our discussion of settlement subject to further questions from uh, the investors. Um, there were some rumors that the states would settle just for a lifeline guarantee. We thought that was wrong. I assume you think the same. But one of the interesting possibilities is what one of the weaknesses we think uh, in the company's argument is that, as you said, the DOJ doesn't really consider MVNOs to be critical competition. And for some period of time, roughly three to seven years, DISH would be an MVNO competitor. That, even under the DOJ complaint, implies that uh, certain certain competitive forces would be reduced. What about a condition that opened up the same MVNO uh, opportunities to others? Would that have any attraction to uh, the states so that they so that the companies could essentially argue that we're not hurting the MVNO market at all during that period. And once he becomes a facilities-based competitor, then everything the, we've essentially fixed that problem. Is that right. a full possibility, or is that not possible? Well, let me break this into two kinds of an analytics. One is state attorneys general are also political figures, usually elected. Um, they have a number of different functions and different angles of thinking about this. They could be worried about the workers. You know, they could be worried about the low-income customers. They could be worried about consumers in general. They could be doing straight antitrust. They could be doing a lot of different things. So on a purely political level, uh, you have to say we don't know exactly what would drive some or most of those states to want to settle for something that would be um, what they think is a good result for their for their constituents. So uh, to me, that's kind of an open-ended thing. But coming at it from what the staff and the experts would present, none of that would matter. It would be straight antitrust. Mm-hmm. So the other unknown, then, if I go back to the analytical side of just doing antitrust and what it would take, is nobody knows what what the sprint predicament will be looking like over the next few months. Um, we know the firms have presented a case that four was not sustainable. The DOJ didn't really buy that, so um, that doesn't necessarily bring fear to the to the um, litigating states. But if there are more facts on the ground that will be presented to the judge that make it look like Sprint is precarious um, or there are other problems, that changes the way one might look at the MVNO environment. I mean, going in, you would just say MVNOs, we've never treated them as real competitors, case over, you know, shut the book. But the more it looks like uncertainty around what viability really is, or alternative options in the market if this deal were rejected, 
Um, then, the, then the state litigators and experts have to answer this question to the decision makers, and that is, will the judge consider these other factors as he looks at our structural presentation? And, you know, it's going to be hard for them to be definitive about that. It's going to be hard to say for sure we know this judge, even if we think he's being really tough on the federal government and on the merging parties, will not look at these other forces in the marketplace and want to dig deeper into, you know, what is a stronger MVNO, what's a weaker MVNO, what's the, what is the but-for world, is Sprint really viable? So that's where there's this ambiguity that could lead to settlement, where the, the experts and lead lawyers will tell the team of AGs, you know, what their odds are of winning a trial. That, that's great. Can we let, let's now dig deeper into what to watch for between now and the opening of the trial? You've mentioned watching the condition of Sprint, obviously important thing. What are some other facts and, and other things like uh, expert uh, um, presentations that investors should be aware of and focused on between now and the trial? Well, so everybody, so in the litigation process, everyone will think that each of the self-interested parties will have a stake in PR and gaming the public discourse about something to fit their 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 message, their storyline. Um, so weaknesses at Sprint may not matter that much because people might think that they're goosing that to make themselves look more vulnerable for the judge. But you'd look for more indicators of just market developments. Who would be potential alternative buyers? Um, is it looking more like it would be a splitting of the Sprint um, uh, spectrum assets or a full-out purchaser in the alternative? Or is it looking like Sun would be inclined to um, reorganize and take one more shot at it if he could shed debt or some? You'd be looking for other, um, you know, either market indications or uh, uh, political moves to be positioned based on what the outcome of the trial is. And that can then work backwards to influence how the trial is unfolding or how the um, again, the, the, the litigators and experts are, um, are handicapping their likelihood of just winning flat out on a structural argument. So in that regard, uh, we might be looking for, for example, certain things that the cable industry might say about their willingness to do certain kinds of transactions. They've, they've already indicated that they were disappointed, or at least Charter indicated it was disappointed it wasn't allowed to the bid on the same deal that Ergen got. I assume we'd also be interested if DISH makes certain announcements about investors or people who will be buying parts of the network, because that goes to the question of whether Ergen actually will build out and has the financing and things like that. Are those facts relevant as well? Well, those facts are certainly relevant to the way it looks. I, I think everything DISH does that makes it look like they are seriously trying to build out bolsters their uh, their presentation. But we're still at a point, again, until you get a pretty close to trial, where you could very easily have the litigators and the experts for the state saying, 
we are going to convince this judge he doesn't need to even look at that. It's a four to three. The Justice Department really is against it based on every factual assessment they've put before you. And we're done. It's uh, highly concentrated, too big an increase in concentration. We're over. Now, so just to play this out a little bit, if you're thinking about getting close to trial or actually if in the first in the first week of trial, let's even say, just to make up a time frame, if the judge says, no, 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 I really have to dig deeper, this isn't so simple, that could be the trigger. Or anything he does pre-trial that preliminarily triggers the view in the states that they're not going to win on a simple structural presentation and economic analysis, that will be what opens the door to the fact that there's a higher risk of going forward and trying to litigate against the fix, and is there something else you put on the table? So in that environment, I think that – so that could be like, you know, at the, at, the, at the courthouse doorsteps. That could be in the trial or certainly very soon before it, just when, when people feel like they're getting some signals from the judge. And the judge may give no signals at all, but just assume there is that situation somewhere pre- preliminary. Then you look at it and say, well, is it lifeline? I kind of doubt it. Is it anything that just is the, the, um, the prepaid market? I sort of doubt that. It's probably something bigger about either the way Sprint looks or the judge's inclination to want to dig deeper into the MVNO structure that um, then makes the states think, well, what what else would we ask for? So, opening up the MVNO, what you, as you presented, Blair, is you know certainly one possibility. I mean, the difficulty is once if you entertain the notion that there should be either a dish or a set of cable companies or one cable company, what you're entertaining is there will not be an immediate fourth competitor that looks like Sprint. Uh, now, one may be faster, you know, one may be better capitalized, one may have a bigger customer base, but you're immediately entertaining what the states think is the weakest point of the party and the DOJ argument, that you're just taking a bird in the hand and letting it fly away. And we don't know what the future looks like. But if it looks like the judge is open to that, then that's your vulnerability at that moment to say, you know, what do I need to put together in a package if I think he might be willing to accept a fix? How does the FCC order, which none of us have seen, but the companies are pretty certainly depending a lot on, and they've had enormous input into, how how do you think the FCC order itself plays into this? So if you're a judge, correct in how this unfolds, and you're being told you don't need to look any deeper, you can buy that just lock, stock, and barrel and say, yeah, there's an expert agency, but um, even the Department of Justice doesn't seem to uh, agree with them on the fundamentals here. I don't need to take this into account at all. Um, and so there is, a, there is, again, a path to going straight to trial with that FCC, whatever the language is, whatever much expertise they claim to present for in, in before the court or is presented before the court, it may have very little impact. On the other hand, so a judge has to think about, um, uh, you know, uh, the, an appeal of a decision if he's too, um, too kind of um, – rigid in what he allows in and what he considers, he might say, well, in order to 
make sure I am more foolproof on appeal, I really need to look at a lot more things. Now, that, that's kind of a threshold gating question there of, you know, what do you think your vulnerability is on appeal? But certainly, if you at all are worried about that, you might want to look deeper and say, well, yes, there was an expert agency, and yes, we often give them deference, and we should give them deference, except where other experts disagree. And lo and behold here, even the DOJ seems to do. You know, so you could see it having some impact, but it also could have very little. Great. One last question, then let's open it up, uh, Ethan, to questions you may have received over the transom or uh, direct questions from investors. Um, let, let's pretend the facts have not changed that much. The judge has not signaled anything. 60 seconds on both sides, uh, strengths, weaknesses, advice for them, just kind of that that just, you know, just before the kickoff <laughs> moment where you say, Here's what the states are looking to do. Here's what the companies are looking to do to win this game. Well, again, I think it's a strong case if you really um, go full bore at the judge and say you, there are a lot of things people are throwing at you you don't need to look at, and you, you really rely heavily on precedent of what the DOJ has done. You even rely upon their complaint. Um, and then you, you bolster it with all your strongest economic analysis, and I think it's a very strong case for the states, um, again, short of new facts arising. On the opposite side, the companies, I think, I mean, it's really hard to know exactly what they think. Um, I guess I would, I would believe just that they need to get the judge to dig deeper than the structural case. And so I think the parties need to take apart why justice filed a complaint that looks like the states, but then went ahead and settled. They have to get into the ear of the judge that this is more complicated. This market is not just cookie cutter and simple. Um, it's not just a numbers game. It's about the nature of the strengths of the players and the particular set of assets at play. And you you got to open the door for the judge to dig deeper. That's to me. That's the fight right at the very beginning, going into the trial. If the parties and, and so if they just do their argument that four to three is fine, it's not really four to three. It's two to three. You know, if they do all of that. I think they run the risk of blowing it. <laughs> Great. Uh, Ethan, questions from uh, investors? Yep. Thank you, Blair and Gene. Quite a few just on settlement. So maybe, Gene, I guess I'll just summarize with a, a you know, what odds would you put on the state AG settling? Or, or do you think we do ultimately get a settlement? Because I get quite a few questions, but ultimately they're all really just trying to get to that issue. Yeah, I think if there's no new facts about Sprint, no new facts about a, the judge's inclination to look beyond the structural case, the states just go full bore, and um, and they they uh, they don't offer up anything, um, and and also uh, my guess is they think that they have the upper hand of offering to settle at any point. Um, and so there's no need to get ahead of yourself. They might even have four settlement scenarios in their back pockets if the judge goes this way, that way, or the other, and they just wait and see. So I think very low likelihood, short of new facts arising about the judge's mindset or other 
other market developments that would scare them about their ability to get the judge to view the case very narrowly. Got it. And, and another one just that is just focused on sort of your view on odds or sort of a prediction is, and I guess based on your comments, you think these odds are pretty low given it seems your interview of the state's case is strong, but what odds would you put on the deal getting through without any type of concessions whatsoever? Very low, like 20%. <laughs> I mean, well, I should take it back. If it's if it's the concessions that the Justice Department has built into, um, uh, you know, their reason for approval, um, just as is, uh, okay, I'll, I guess I should say it's more like 40%. Um, I mean, if a judge sees that, if a judge wants to open this up, um, and uh, and thinks that that he needs to look a little more carefully, and then he sees that justice has done quite a bit. You know, I'd put that around forty percent. Um, my guess is there's probably going to be some inclination if the judge thinks the state case at all is strong to augment that somehow. And so there, you know, I think there's if there are more things to be put on the table, the odds could go up once you get to that point. Um, that was sort of my follow-up, is what odds would you put on a deal getting through with concessions? And, and maybe I'll make that even a, uh, a two-part would be, in your mind, what concessions would satisfy the states? So they do drop their case, kind of just coming all the way full circle back to the idea of, of settlement. Thanks. So I would think that, um, you know, again, this actually goes back a little bit to the, the strategies. I mean, in a way... The most, you know, once the judge starts looking at this again, if he's willing to look at all under the hood, I think probably the most important factor will be what is what, what are the best witnesses put forward for the deal, and I got to believe that's Charlie Ergen and and his team to be able to present effectively that this is not some old-fashioned MBNO. This is not this is not the kind of thing that has been summarily rejected in the past. This is totally different. If that is a strong presentation and the judge is open to it, I think the odds go way up for a deal with concessions. Um, so to me, that might be, other than the structural argument of don't look too deep, this is straightforward, if, if, you, if you break through that barrier with the judge and you do start looking under the hood, the strength of that testimony and that presentation could take it from 40% to 70, 80%, depending on how well that comes across. And that's, uh, we, there's another question that we had, which would, I guess kind of gets exactly to what you're just referencing right now, which would be what are the incremental steps in your mind that this should take in the interim to make their court case better? I guess Blair had referenced like partnerships earlier, but you know, beyond that, is there anything else that you would uh, uh, frame? So, so basically, what if if you boil this down? Once you get into the knitting, it comes down to a uh, bird in the hand, four to three. But you know, then how much cloud is there over that fourth player if it is allowed to survive? It's easy to look backwards and say, the Sprint did all these great things, um, and um, but if looking forward, there's more of a cloud over what they what they what they look like. You know, then the the straight four to three argument doesn't look so strong. So then it's you know, well, is Ergen really making taking risks? Is, is he really 
putting money into the ground, so to speak, to to make something like this happen. If you're already in that world where you say, well, we're, we're going to be struggling for some fourth player to make it, the Justice Department says there should be four, the states say there should be four, what's the best way to do that? Well, then you look around and, and see if there's anything else out there that looks um, more logically stronger than what is being presented as a settlement. Um, but that's where, you know, anything that Bergen has, financing, meaningful plans, you're, you're already in a world where you're accepting that um, there will be an interregnum period of less than robust fourth player. And you have to figure out what is the strongest uh, set of assets that gets you uh, a full fourth player as quickly as possible. Got it. And I guess if DISH as a competitor is going to be such a key issue in the trial, how do you think the companies or the... the I'm sorry, you broke up. Well, just if DISH as a competitor is such a key issue, or if not the, the, the key issue in the trial, how, how do you think the companies are going to argue their side? And then conversely, how will the states argue their side? Thanks. Well, so it's a combination of factors. It's DISH as a key, key witness, and then it's facts on the ground about Sprint and how the parties argue, um, you know, what, <laughs> why, why they both can claim that there can't be a fourth player and then say, but if we do these, if we make these concessions, there will be a fourth player. I mean, they've got to do a dance that is, I think, really tricky for them. And, and that's why I think, you know, they, they have to almost, I think they need to move more towards the DOJ frame and say, okay, well, you know, we don't think four can survive, but, you know, based on the economics we have, but the DOJ, even thinking there was four, you know, believes this is a fair way of splitting up the assets. The companies have to pivot to that, to that settlement framework, I think, as quickly as possible, because um, I just don't see how they can argue both sides of that without looking you know, both self-interested and just disingenuous. So that's the hard part for their part of the litigation. That's also why I think it's important to know how the judge is going to want to bring DOJ into this. I mean, who is going to be arguing for the settlement? Um, how is that going to be presented? If the parties do it, they have to kind of jettison a lot of their old stuff. Um, and if they're not that good at it, you know, they almost need DOJ there to make that argument. So, Gene, this is Jonathan. I'm wondering if I could follow up on that. So one of the ideas that we had written about that might bolster exactly the weakness that you've identified um, is if T-Mobile agreed to deploy Dish's network for them um, and then network share, essentially share all the passive um, infrastructure in the network. Uh, thereby achieving, I think, two things. Number one, a great deal more certainty that a new network actually gets deployed. And number two, lowering the costs of uh, that new network for the new entrant and also for Timo um, with the potential, with, you know, hopefully the likelihood that in a four carrier market, um, those lower costs get passed down to consumers. With that, um, if you get past the, the first hurdle where the, whereby the judge is willing to dig deeper, would that kind of a uh, concession strengthen the company's case materially? Well, 
So on paper, yes. But let me present uh, what I think is kind of more the real life picture of how that happens. So I'll buy your premise. We're, we're past the, you know, the, we're digging now into it. The difficulty with that, with that approach is that the, the states will argue that, sure, Charlie Ergen likes this deal because he was in a difficult situation with a build-out and an FCC set of constraints that were Im- impeding him, and he d- didn't look like he was succeeding. So he needed to take whatever he could take. So he's doing this out of desperation, not out of a business model or a business plan. That's, I think, what the states will probably try to argue. And then they'll say he doesn't have a track record. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll throw in a lot of stuff. So if Ergen is the key witness and, and, his, and his people around countering that, they're going to say, we have a business strategy. We have a model. This is how we're investing. So now I want to superimpose, Jonathan, your, your, your additional fixes. I think you're in a situation then where the judge says, so, Mr. Ergen, does this help you? Is this what you need? Is this what you want? And I'm not sure he says yes. <laughs> um, right. Because he says, he says, no, you know, I don't need that. That's not what I want. I mean, I, I've got what I need. I mean, in one hand, he needs to be convincing that he wasn't doing this under duress. And this was like a Hail Mary, and he's got to say, of course it'll work, even if he doesn't think it will. He's got to say, no, 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 I got what I bargained for. This is what I really want. Now, he might be able so is there a way to finesse that problem, okay? He might be able to say, sure, you know, um, fine if they build. I think I can build it myself. The real conflict you have there if he, is if he, if he says, I'm not going to do it the way they do it. I'm not going to present – my business model is slightly different. I don't want to be dependent on their build structure. Then you've got a bit of a – you've got a logical solution that doesn't have market players who want to go that path. And that's what I worry about being the problem with, with the theory. Now, if Ergen says, no, that's fine, that, you know, that's fine too, and, and if he says – Back to, to Blair's original point, you know, the MVNO kind of structure could be available to others. I'm sure that's not in his, comp, in his self-interest as a, you know, wanting to be the fourth player, period, full stop. But again, you know, Charlie Ergen is his own person. He could say, I'm not trying to game the system. Let anybody else in here who wants to do it. I'm going to beat them. If he says that and says you can add more conditions and whatnot if it makes you feel confident that there'll be more players who could be the fourth, um, that's probably is the best winner strategy on their side. If, if they can stomach that, I don't know if they can. <laughs> Got it. I mean, so, so again, it's, it's, he's a key player towards the, um, in the real world in a trial before a judge convincing them that, that you got to look under the hood more carefully at what an MVNO really is and what this market looks like. On the other hand, if you're thinking and if the states come in and say, well, we need these additional protections, um, you've got to then match those up with, uh, does that really work or is this just a kind of theoretical way of trying to feel better about a settlement? Got it. Makes sense. Ethan, any more questions on your end? I have a couple of follow-ups for Dana. Uh, I just realized we have actually to the operator. I don't know if there are any questions on the line, but operator, can you just check real quick? Yeah, and if, if, thank you. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, press star 1 to ask a question. And we do have a question from uh, Josh Wool. Please go ahead. 
Hey, uh, thanks for doing the call. Gene, I, I have two questions. The first is around wholesale harm, which is only remedied with a conduct remedy. And, and just the question is, could that by itself be enough to stop the deal? And, and the motivation for the question is uh, both the DOJ and the state AGs identified harm to the wholesale market. The dish remedy doesn't address that. There's a separate part of the settlement, which requires T-Mobile and Sprint to extend existing MVNOs, I think, for seven years. But obviously, extending existing MVNOs is not the same as Sprint and T-Mobile competing to offer new and better MVNO agreements. And so, if the judge finds that there is indeed harm to wholesale and looks at that as just a pure conduct remedy, is that alone uh, enough to, to, to block the deal or for him to stop the deal? Yeah, I think in theory it is. I think it's a pretty uh, thin read, um, uh, a behavioral remedy versus something structural. I think, um, I mean, if I'm a judge and I want to avoid getting into the details and the strength of behavior, I would want to be relying on the broad structural argument, period, full stop, highly concentrated, too big an increase in concentration, because uh, otherwise, otherwise you're parsing um, and on appeal, having to think about being upheld, um, uh, whether you have the expertise to be able to truly judge that a behavioral remedy is inadequate um, in a in a portion of the market, and and there's where I think you open yourself up to the well. The expert agency didn't see a problem, and you know, I mean, so you, you know, you. I, I think it, it's just in theory one could do it. I think it's. It'd be a pretty, going out on a limb on a pretty narrow theory of a case on appeal. Okay. Uh, and, and maybe that's a good segue to my second question, which is more at a high level. To what extent will Judge Marrero base his ruling on, on what he thinks or interprets the intended risk allocation framework is inherent in Section 7? And I guess the motivation for this question is in Time Warner, you know, 45 cents per month was too much risk for the DOJ and Del Rahim to, to, to take. Uh, in agreeing to a behavior remedy. But in, in this case, it seems like the DOJ is willing to take a whole lot of risk. And I think uh, Macon famously said at the press conference announcing this deal that there's risk when he crosses the street, seeming to make light of the risk that the DISH can succeed even though Sprint has not. And Sprint has all of these advantages like postpaid subs, an actual network, real operating history. And so to what extent will Judge Marrero have to, to, to make a call on Section 7 actually says I need to have a low risk tolerance, and so it's really hard for me to approve, you know, this kind of Frankenstein remedy? Oh, boy. So this really comes to – so, you know, the judge can go any which way on that. This really comes down to what is his gut inclination when presented with, you know, the, the evidence, enough evidence for him to feel like he's, he's got the risk factors in front of himself. You know, it's going to be very – so I think the, the relevance of what DOJ did before in a different case – uh, you know, won't matter that. I, I mean, I, I, all of the all of the previous behavior of DOJ is going to be, uh, and the FCC, frankly, is going to be enough for this judge to want to not give just presumptions to the government that they just. So you're not going to a little bit like Judge Leon. This is about as close an analogy as I'll draw. You're going to have a skeptical judge, skeptical of the federal government. Period. Full stop. But that's as far as the analogy goes. There, he'll be skeptical and he'll be wanting to look more carefully at what they've done. So, 
Um, I think he could very easily say, I got a low risk tolerance. I'm just going to say no. And um, it's too uncertain. Um, and there's plenty of precedent for that. Uh, and think he's, you know, and he's got good, you know, uh, evidence presented by the states on that and just takes a chance on that on, on appeal. Um, now, again, if he is at all convinced that this is more complicated, you know, despite his skepticism of the federal government, that, that this market is not going to look uh, very pretty if you just say no to the deal. There's going to be problems, and, you know, he doesn't want to look like the judge who said, I applied and I trust forcefully, and then you still end up with only three players, or you end up with an asset division that, you know, looks like it's mostly benefiting three players. Um, that's not a win that is all that satisfying. So I think that's the biggest factor for the judge. Does he think that? Uh, okay, I'll give you a different analogy. In AT&T, T-Mobile, when you look at the commitment AT&T had made to assets to be uh, um, provided to T-Mobile and resources provided to T-Mobile as a breakup fee, if they lost, the Justice Department had a pretty much stronger case to say uh, that besides the logic of four to three not being right, there were you know, going to be actually additional resources available to T-Mobile. This situation is different. What, is, what does Sprint do the day the judge rules in favor of the states and it has to figure out its next step on a business model? Uh, does that judge feel confident that he has just you know, applied strict antitrust to achieve a strong market result, or is he worried that it's going to look fishy or it's not going to work so simply and he needs to be balancing the risks a little differently? That's, that's what we don't know. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We have no additional questions on the phone at this time. There's a, uh, there was a follow-up for you, which was just on the, uh, from the field regarding the question of settlement. I think you seem to view the idea uh, or the likelihood that a for mobile and fix would not be sufficient. Can you just unpack that a little bit more as to why? Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry. You were breaking up. I mean, did a, a fix of what? So uh, as it relates to uh, the likelihood that a strong lifeline condition for fixed, oh, okay. uh, for mobile and fixed, you, you seem to be of the view that that would not be sufficient. And uh, the question is, can you can sort of uh, why is that the case? Why do you feel that that's not sufficient? Well, because I, I mean, again, this is back where I remember I said there's two two kinds of decision making that the uh, attorneys general make. One is their politics. And the other is just what is good antitrust enforcement from a state enforcement point of view. Um, on the latter side, I don't think just taking care of low-income people and giving them a subsidy resolves antitrust concerns. So as a pure policy matter, I don't think it does much for the states. Uh, I can't really answer for sure on the political side because you have to get into their head and their motivation. Do they want to say, we've settled this and there's going to be this new dish player. And by the way, we've made sure that there's a low income option. If they really think that that's a constituency that they wanted to go out of their way to protect and it serves their politics, it's plausible. I'm just skeptical. Well, that's one of the arguments that was made about the weakness of the consolidation at the front end. I don't think that by itself is what gets them the political result they're looking for. 
Got it. And then, uh, if you don't mind, if there was another follow-up as it relates to a settlement, I think you, you seem to be more inclined to believe a settlement would come during or shortly after the trial began once we had you know, some signaling from the judge rather than a awkward house death. Is that, that fair? Yes. I mean, unless the judge signals much earlier in trial preparation what kinds of witnesses and what kinds of testimony and and signals, you know, how he wants to draw in, if he wants to draw in the Justice Department settlement proposal with justice participation. I mean, those could be signals to the litigating parties of, uh, of at least what the what the universe of things the judge is interested in or concerned about, and that could change the dynamics of of risk assessment of trial and whether it's worth offering settlement. Uh, that's great. And then just one more for you, Gene, as it relates to precedence. You had referenced AT&T. Uh, you were part of a DOJ team that uh, took a close look at Comcast NBCU. Uh, a deal with similar long-term structural concerns. You know, what does your experience there tell you, if anything? See, I think Comcast NBCU was very, very different because um, it was vertical media assets. Um, it was this is much more of a horizontal um, case, um, and so I can't really draw them any there with the FCC wanting to use their access to programming regulatory framework and having had a tradition of of kind of monitoring non-discriminatory actions that that relate to vertical um, uh, activity. Um, I think that was just very different. Um, so there you were in a, a mode of, of settlement mindset, even with those who thought it was a, a decent case, um, uh, that, you know, it was very hard to show that um, it's very hard to to to, um, to come up with anything but very high risks of litigating against the fix. Um, uh, it would have been very very difficult to do um, with what Comcast was putting on the table and what the FCC was willing to accept. Here, I think it's quite different. You have you know you have a complaint from the from the DOJ that that really mirrors a lot of what the states are arguing, and then a fix that's just different in a horizontal situation. So um, I, I, I really think the states are probably feeling much better than they would in a Comcast NBCU situation of going ahead and rolling the dice. That's great. And I know coming up on the hour, I just, there was one more from the field for you, which was just related to Ken Paxton uh, joining. And, and the question is, is why or do we have any why he did join? Is due to AT and T sort of text influence, or you know, is there some sort of quid pro quo going on with a damn state AG as it relates to something like Google-related action? Yeah. So I would, I would first of all, I would be highly skeptical that there's any quid pro quo kind of thing or anything that goes across all these other issues. It's certainly not impossible. As I said, these are political actors, and they have multiple. Motivation. So I, I just I don't know that at all. I just I, I wouldn't go there immediately as an assumption. Now you know why do different states want to be want to be in? Um, uh, uh, and number one, um, if, if it's not too expensive to tag along, and I don't know what the terms and conditions are of being part of the team, but um, you know you probably want to be at the bargaining table, or you probably want to be in it. Now that it's going forward, um, especially if you think any settlement could affect your state, um, 
uh, and and so I think there could be a lot of different motivation uh, besides purely on the merits um, as to why anyone would join at this point. Thank you, uh, Bear. That is it in terms of questions uh, that got sent. And did you want to wrap it up here? Or? I'm good. Thank you, you very much. Well, we can yeah, wrap it up you, as far as I'm concerned. Right, thank you very great. much, Gene. Gene, thank you from all sure. of us yeah. for doing this. Uh, this is really great. Want to thank. Thank you all for your attention. This concludes today's conference. All participants may now disconnect. Yeah.